This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. Uh, my name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Never know which letter I'm going to get stuck on next. There's five of them in there, and they're all good to get stuck on except G, I think. You wouldn't, well, the C and the G are both kind of tricky because you you can't do like a max headroom like, my name is Craig. <laughs> And you don't want to do like I'm Craig. G -g -g -g. I'm Craig. Yeah, that mm, I don't want to Craig. See, that's good. That's like uh, WWE. Like, let's get ready to rumble voice. Oh, I like that. What do you? Yeah. What, what would you do for Andrew? Andrew. Andrew. It's, you just get real stuck into that EW because you can't spell Andrew without you. <laughs> God. That's what I always say. <laughs> this is our book podcast where each week one of us reads a book, tells the other person about it, and you, the listener, get to enjoy. Listen. <laughs> yeah. That's enjoy, it. experience, dislike. You're, it's up to you what reaction you have to it as long as you keep hit, mashing that download yeah, button. Yeah, it's funny how like people <laughs> think that podcasts are like a one-way medium where people listen, but like the the two-way part is where the listener decides whether or not they like it. Yeah, y'all collectively communicate to to us through the download numbers. <laughs> oh boy. So, Craig, uh we are not spending multiple hours discussing the book you read this week, just 1 hour. So, what book are you going to spend exactly one hour telling me about? Wow, you pointed out that irony. I read the book The Hours by Michael Cunningham. Ooh. You got me, Andrew. You done got yeah, me. I did. All the time. Uh, no relation, by the way, to Michael Cunningham. That you know of. That I know of. Good point. <laughs> keep your, keep your Yikes. mind open. Boy, I better get on one of the DNA government Please DNA websites. Oh, and <laughs> anyway, um, this book uh, is going to talk a lot about Virginia Woolf. We'll talk about that and why in just a second. If you mm -hmm. want some more overdue Virginia Wolf content, go back to July 5th, 2015. Hop in the old time machine and go back to another era. Listen to episode 122 for To the Lighthouse or go back to May of last year, episode 416. Andrew talked about Orlando. So this will sure. be like we have not read the book that this book is about. Yes. So uh, Virginia Woolf, of course, the English author, born in 1882, died in 1941, who is a fixture in the literary canon for a bunch of reasons, including the quality of her work and her sexuality and her history of mental illness. Yeah. Uh, then the book that The Hours is interacting with primarily is Mrs. Dalloway, which is a 1925 novel. Yeah. Uh, Wolf is a character in the hours, as I, I am given to understand. That is correct. <laughs> One of the like three perspectives that the book features. Uh, the New York Times review of the hours from uh, 1998 mentions its interactions with with uh, Mrs. Dalloway and with Wolf a little bit. Okay. 
and uh, says, we don't have to read Mrs. Dalloway before we can read the hours and no amount of pedantic comparison hunting will help us understand it if we don't understand it already. But the connections between the two books after the initial, perhaps over elaborate laying out of repetitions and divergences are so rich and subtle and offbeat that to not to read Mrs. Dalloway after we've read the hours seems like a horrible denial of a readily available pleasure as if we were to leave a concert just when the variations were getting interesting. Why is the New York Times giving me homework, Andrew? Because it's the New York Times in 1998, and everybody who's reading the New York Times okay, Dad. 23 years ago loves homework. Oh, man. I mean, he's, whoever wrote that's not wrong. I mean, they, that's not a bad show programming note for like August, as if you want to go read Mrs. Dalloway. Maybe I will. Sure. Make like that- we haven't we've got July almost set, but August is still up for grabs. Okay. Okay, maybe I will because I have not read that book before. So if there are some things that I forget or fail to mention related to the hours and what it is saying about or referencing in Mrs. Dalloway, it's cuz I don't know. It's cuz you're a stupid idiot who hasn't read Mrs. Dalloway. Yeah. So tune in in August when I become Mr. Dalloway. I don't. I'm good enough to read the New York Times now. I wouldn't have been good enough to read it back in 1998. <laughs> what should we know about your potential relation, Michael Cunningham? Michael Cunningham, who may or may not be a distant cousin of mine, was born <laughs> in 1952. Um, he's an American author and currently a, a Yale, like a senior lecturer. Uh, teaching creative writing at Yale. Came out of that um, Iowa and, Writers Workshop. Yeah, another alum of the illustrious Iowa Writers Workshop. Yeah. Uh, the Hours is his most notable work, but he's also published since then the novels Specimen Days by Nightfall and The Snow Queen. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of other short stories, screenplays, nonfiction, and other stuff. Um, he re- He's received a bunch of awards. Um, a uh, witting, whiting, whiting, witting, white. Keep going. <laughs> Writers Award, nineteen ninety five, a Guggenheim Fellowship, nineteen ninety three, Guggenheim. Uh, National Endowments for the Arts Fellowship in in nineteen eighty eight, and a Michener Fellowship from the University of Iowa in nineteen eighty two. And well, then the hours yeah. specifically won. Uh, won, what what award? The did Pulitzer it win? Prize. The Andrew. Pulitzer Prize. It won the award that you get as the well best as one the for Penn writing a Faulkner book. Award. Yeah, yeah. Well. That's, that's fine. That also also a fine <laughs> like, award. Which one I'm did sure. it win? Oh, the Pulitzer. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Uh yeah. So that's, that's I Michael knew about Cunningham. this book because it was adapted into a film. And I uh, yes, not... it was adapted into a film in 2002 with Meryl Streep, Julianne Moore, and Nicole Kidman. <laughs> yeah, and Kidman played Virginia Woolf, I believe. I think that there was some... Yeah. She won an award for it. There was some discussion of the prosthetic makeup that she wore. That I mean, I was looking at the poster of it, and I'm like, well, my experience of Nicole Kidman, Kidman's nose is much different than my experience yeah. looking at it in this poster. Trying to make her look like Virginia Woolf is my uh-huh. understanding. Um, sure. Uh, but yeah, Cunningham is but beyond uh, the source material had no real involvement in like the screenplay or, or any of the other creative no. work that happened for that movie. So um, that's the I deal. did find a, a piece that Cunningham had written for The Guardian in 2011 called Virginia Woolf, My Mother and Me, which is my favorite. Sitcom. It's my favorite podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he says, um, 
he's talking a little bit about the like so the book opens we'll come back we'll come back to this after the we take a break in a few minutes but the book opens with a depiction of wolf's suicide and this book does engage with characters thinking about and dealing with suicide so like careful treading into this yeah. book um, yeah. if you need to be but that that's like one of the things yeah. about wolf so yes um yeah and he talks about how you know she took her own life among other reasons feeling about like the failure of thinking her the, her last work uh between the acts was a failure um he talks about there's like a few kisses in this book there's a few important kisses that happen and he thought it was interesting that there are all only two in her entire body of work one of which is in mrs dalloway which i think is probably why it resonates in this work um and he talks about how I've he, not read that as a as a criticism of Virginia Woolf's work. Before. No, it's like not enough smooching. <laughs> not enough smooching. No, that's not what it is. Um, and he talks a lot about how he was trying to. He read that book when he was fifteen. He read it to impress someone he thought he was going to date. <laughs> of course, he did. And that, that's two equally huge things. Is like. Talking about a book you read when you were 15 for the rest of your life and also reading something to seem smart to impress somebody else who you wanted to smooch. I've never done any of those things. Not at all. Um, Um, I don't believe you. And he, you know, fell in love with the book and it kind of followed him throughout his life. And he... (laughs) Like the the Bob and (laughs) He wanted to write a story about Wolf working on Mrs. Dalloway. He found like a kind of a what he called a diptych structure where it was uh yeah like a triptych i don't think you could say that on a oh man on a clean pot on a family podcast Um, like ours he thought about doing a like back and forth between wolf and a modern version of mrs alloway which makes it into the final version and it still wasn't working he put it aside and then as he says it um uh, sitting at my computer, I pictured Clarissa Dalloway and pictured Wolf, her creator, standing behind her. And then unbidden, I imagined my mother standing behind Wolf. And so the third character in this novel that we'll talk about, character named Laura, uh, he, Laura Brown, he fashioned on his mother and the particulars of her life, you know, in the middle of the 20th century following World War II and, and just the life that she led. Okay. Um he does a, it's a pretty moving paragraph where he talks about kind of she had read the book. He says he's not sure Virginia Woolf would have liked the book, though he thinks it's that fine. She didn't have to, though. Yeah, <laughs> that's, like, that's the good thing about it. Uh, but maybe she would have enjoyed the fact that someone played her in a movie. And then he's like, my mom didn't love the book because it was like her life in it. But also he got to show her 20 minutes of dailies from the production because she was uh passing away from cancer at the time that the film was being made. So he got, I think Rick Rudin gave him some dailies from the, sh- from the set, which is, that's very nice. That's cool. See um, yourself in a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing to know about uh, Cunningham is he is gay and the, all three of the characters in this book are yeah. somewhere on that, but they're either you know gay or bi or Q big theme of the book. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the Q part of, of LGBTQ. Um, and he, but he is, and he's got this quote out there about not wanting to be known as a quote gay writer that he is 
I think been forced to elaborate upon in many subsequent interviews. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this is uh, one that he, he was talking to someone from out.com and said, uh, what I meant to say is that I don't want to be seen as only a gay writer. I've always been out and most of my novels are concerned with the lives of gay people. I'm perfectly happy to be a gay writer because that's what I am. What I never wanted to be was pushed into a niche. I didn't want the gay aspects of my books to be perceived as their single primary characteristic. Like any halfway serious writer, I'm trying to write about more than my characters' outward qualities and focus on the depths of their beings, their fears and their devotions, which take place at a level deeper than sexual orientation. Um, there are, of course, some real differences in the way gay people live and what we experience, but we're not from Mars, he says. There's a lot of good quotes in that interview. He de- he goes on to talk about, like, you know, he wants, like, what if you got rid of the, you know, like, gay and lesbian or, like, queer book section out of Barnes and Nobles or something? Uh, and he's like, that is probably, you know, you can make an argument for that to be the case, but you can also make an argument for, like, does does a kid who is you know not feeling comfortable where they are because of who they are find some solace by like finding those books more easily um and he has i mean counterpoint why can't i go to the straight book section of a barnes and noble i (laughs) would andrew (laughs) let's sneak into a barnes and noble and just make a straight book section Please on uh, twitter.com slash overdepod is our social media feed. Tweet at us which section of a Barnes and Noble you think the straight book section is because I think people will have a lot of fun with that one. <laughs> Go read that out.com interview with him. Uh, it's called Catching Michael Cunningham, I believe. Yeah, we can, we, can, uh, Cunningham. we can post that on social. Yeah, we'll do. This week too. Okay, yeah. uh, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about the book. Okay. Andrew, I can't do it alone. You can't? Do you need some help? I do need some help. What if it was... What level of help? Do you need, like, fair help, good help, best help? Is there something somewhere in, above that? I don't know. Is there? You tell me. You've got the copy in front of I you. I do. It's better help. <laughs> Overdue is brought to you uh, this week by our sponsor, BetterHelp, which makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So anyone who struggles with life... Just, challenges can get help anytime anywhere BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist you can start communicating with them in a safe private online environment in under 48 hours and you can send a message to your counselor at any time the service is available for clients worldwide and licensed professional counselors have a broad range of expertise as a listener you will get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com overdue Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, betterhelp.com slash overdue. It's not good. It's not great. It's not best. It's BetterHelp. Andrew. Craig. What'd you do today? Just like, what did you do today? Well, uh, Henry's been running like a... 100 to 101 degree fever all day I'm sorry so to hear that we have he, he is fine he has he has primarily wanted to watch tv which he calls tb yeah of course and he will be stomping all up and down the house just repeating tb tb <laughs> tb over again 
Like if I ask him if he wants what early for dinner, I asked him if he wants some cheese and he said chibi to me. <laughs> he wants the cheese TV. <laughs> so that was mostly my thing. It's just like it's because it's I'm I you know, I'm a little worried that he's sick. Yeah. But this is more information than you asked for. I'm a little worried that he's sick, but him being sick also makes him more of a snuggler, which was nice. So we had a little snuggle. Okay. So and we watched Curious George on TV. What you just did. Mm-hmm. Could be a novel similar to. I know it was long, but geez, like Mrs. don't be a jerk about it. No, <laughs> so the concerns of what I what I understand to be Mrs. Dalloway and what we're going to talk about in this book is like it's the day in a life of a few characters and their kind of quotidian struggles. I think I'm using that word correctly. Uh, and the way in which little moments in their days. Um, yeah, you got it. Thank you. Quotidian. The way in little moments in their days kind of echo out into larger parts of their life or into the uh, perspectives of other characters. There's a lot in the book stylistically where you can tell Cunningham is kind of riffing on what Wolf will do. Um I've, from what I recall into the lighthouse, but certainly in this book, you get a lot of like, Hey, you and I are in a scene and it started as my chapter and I'm kind of talking and I'm thinking, and I'm the narrator, but not really the narrator. And then like all of a sudden in the next paragraph, like you have opinions and then you're, it just kind of like the camera just floats really effortlessly, uh, between the heads of the people that were, that were talking about, mm-hmm. um, as we alluded to before the break, there are three primary, characters and there are three like perspectives we follow there is virginia wolf as she completes her novel mrs dalloway in 1923 uh the other main like point of tension or conflict for her is that she has recently moved out to the suburbs uh, in rochester where like outside of london where her and her husband this is all you know based on real things um they set up their own printing press got her away from the the publisher that her half brother was running i think um which allowed her some more creative freedom but obviously she was not living the life that she wanted to leave lead out in the suburbs there is laura brown um referred to as by chapter heads as mrs brown in this book who is a post world war ii american housewife 1949 outside la this is the Mm -hmm. character that is roughly based on cunningham's mom i think um she is reading mrs dalloway and she has a, f- a husband and a son and isn't sure kind of what she wants or if she wants any of it. Okay. Then there is Clarissa Vaughn, our Mrs. Dalloway. She had a relationship with a guy who's still in her life, but they are not in a relationship and haven't been for a good long time, um, who once, because her name was Clarissa, decided to call her Mrs. Dalloway forever. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you know, or Mrs. D, you know, mm-hmm. just cause, cause it's cute or fun. Yeah, no, no. And, and there's, she talks about like, you know, it's been over 20 years, if not longer. And every once in a while, she's like, should I just tell him I don't want to be called that anymore? <laughs> maybe, the, maybe today I could tell him. That's why I've resisted all nicknames. You, for so long. yeah. Because I had, listen, people, some people in high school decided to call me. Andy mm. and I had a chance when I went to college to make a break from that and I did successfully. You did. And I'm not I'm not going back 
And everybody on Twitter is going to call me Andy to be funny. Like, people have been there before. Why don't you have an original thought? You get blocked. You get muted. <laughs> you get timed out. Mm-hmm. Don't call him Andy. It's Andrew to you. Yeah. Can't can't spell Andy. Can't, there's no you in Andy. That's true. That's true. There isn't. Um, I looked. <laughs> there's not. <laughs> Clarissa Vaughn, uh, her plotline takes place in 1999, I think, or somewhere in the late 20th century. Uh, she is a publisher, and she her story, from what I understand, is like, what if we beat by beat rift on the novel Mrs. Dalloway with a few other like updates and things? Sure. But um, as clueless is to Emma, I suppose this <laughs> <laughs> this section it's not as irreverent, but it, this section is. Uh, to Mrs. Dalloway. Mm-hmm. And as she's the man is to Twelfth Night. Yes. Uh-huh. You got any more? No, I just wanna, you just, I just Googled that to one sure. to make sure. I, I, I needed to Google which of the Shakespeare plays she's the man was a riff on. I knew it was one of them. <laughs> okay. I'm more familiar with she's the man than I am with the works of the Bards. So. Yeah, fair enough. The book does open with a... Uh, with a prologue of sorts that is set in 1941, it is a depiction of Wolf putting a heavy stone in her jacket pocket and walking into a river. It is yep. pretty intense. Mm-hmm. It is also fitting with the theme of the rest of the book, where like kind of people going about their day to day things. Like the closing image is really it. It is gruesome, not in a like a horror way, but gruesome in a like a yow way yeah yeah yeah. where you know she is in the river and a little boy and his mom like walk by like they're just on a walk and he is like just like walking across the bridge where nearby and not knowing that she's in there or anything like that just kind of like life goes on kind of stuff yep um and like i said the book i don't know if anything you've read review wise andrew kind of illuminated the structure in any interesting ways i think for Isn't me just like jumping between perspectives a lot that's the main thing that's I, the main I thing for me i would classify clarissa dalloway as or clarissa vaughn as the like a plot she is the the rapper in which all of this happens um we get and probably that's because she is a retelling of mrs dalloway i guess but the the kind of B plot of Brown or, or Laura Brown, like reading this novel and kind of working through her own what do I do with my life stuff, um, it ties it together. And there's a fun little twist at the end that maybe some people figured out before I did. I won't <laughs> ruin it for folks, actually. I think I will keep that one aside. But there yeah, is a, there's some connective tissue in the end of this book that I wasn't expecting that I was a little pleased with. Okay. Um, which choose your own adventure, Andrew, which plot line do you want to go down? Which character do you want to hear more about first? I guess I wanted to hear about Virginia Woolf first, because that's the least purely fictional of the three perspectives, right? Like that, that's the one where Cunningham probably, I mean, I, his mom, he's probably like, he he's probably following her life closely yep. in some ways that we don't really know and can't really talk about. But 
I got I gotta feel like the book flows from Wolf, and so she's probably the the one to start with. Sure. Good. Does that make sense? Yeah, it works makes sense for me. That's that was actually my first set of notes here. So you chose correctly. There you go. Look at that. Um and it starts with her like embarking on this novel, Mrs. Dalloway, and she is working to overcome her, you know, struggles with mental illness. Uh, her struggles with migraines that seem to exacerbate her mental illness. I found this quote not in the it's not in the novel, but um, she she had written somewhere on being ill. Let a sufferer try to describe a pain in his head to a doctor, and language at once runs dry. Just like actually trying to explain what you're going through is impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a an interesting image that I was what I found that quote because I was trying to figure out if Cunningham had come up with this conceit where he refers to her headache as like almost like a his dark material style demon like daemon that exists outside of her that afflicts her Hmm. that is not a corporeal being but like she might be walking down the street and all of a sudden her husband will notice that she is like not in her right state. She might be averting her eyes from something or whatever it might be. And she says, ah, yes, my, my headache is over there. And it could be anything from a rectangle of light to just a feeling. Um, and I just saw I was really struck by that as a way to communicate the experience of illness or discomfort. Um that you know for a lot of folks there is not a good way to convey that so i I don't know that Mm -hmm. struck me um yeah yeah yeah. and she's embarking on this novel that is meant to show the power of the everyday that's why i asked you what you did today um as i alluded to earlier her husband is helping her publish now so he's like working in her house or working in their house um they have some lackeys who come in and literally run the, the printing press itself um and she lays out what I think is like this interesting uh, mission statement for the type of literature that Wolf writes. And I, this is all Cunningham's words, I think, but he did do, he cites a lot of, uh, a couple of different biographies as well as Wolf's like diaries and letters. He's, uh, but she says, men may congratulate themselves for writing truly and passionately about the movements of nations. They may consider war and the search for God to be great literature's only subjects. But if men standing in the world could be toppled by an ill-advised choice of hat, English literature would be dramatically changed. <laughs> and then she goes on as she is planning the book, Mrs. Dalloway. Clarissa Dalloway, she thinks, will kill herself over something that seems on the surface like very little. Her party will fail or her husband will once again refuse to notice some effort she's made about her person or their home. The trick will be to render intact the magnitude of Clarissa's miniature but very real desperation to fully mm-hmm. convince the reader that for her... Domestic defeats are every bit as devastating as our lost battles to a general. And I think that's a like mission statement for a lot of fiction that has <laughs> arisen since Wolf. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about plenty of those that type of fiction on the show. And sometimes it is easier to talk about than others because like plot matters less, right? I don't know if you have any sure. want to give voice to any of those struggles whenever you're tackling one of those books, but um, it is tough for me to be like, because this book is like a lady bought some flowers and she went to visit someone and then 
uh, some sad things happened and the book was over for her. And this other lady was trying to make a cake and she had some feelings about it. And then she spent an afternoon in a hotel and then her story was over. And Virginia Woolf's trying to write a novel and her sister shows up early to her house and she has some feelings about it. And then we move on. Yeah, I mean, it is just, it is, it is easier mentally for my like adult ADHD brain to read a book in a timely fashion for the weekly book podcast that I do. If there is a stronger plot thread to, to pull on rather than just like a bunch of stuff that happened. And the, that's not to besmirch the, a bunch of stuff that happened (laughs) format. There's a lot going on there that is good. But it is just is just easier to yeah you know what I mean yeah I do um, so I'll I'll hit a couple of the thematic things that the wolf chapters illuminate so she is really dealing with how trapped she is now fe- feeling outside of London and she remarks that like if they moved back there it might not like abate her mental illness and might not save her life as she is already considering like, you know, thinking about taking it and whatnot, but at least, or at least I think in her perspective, she's like wasting away, but at least she wouldn't be doing it in the suburbs. (laughs) And there's something (laughs) like, I don't know. She feels very isolated. There was something she says. She almost just gets on a train and goes to London before dinner. I don't know if you've ever just like, I've never done this, Andrew. I've never just like, left somewhere without telling like Laura where I'm going. Like I've never just like left the house and just spent three hours. Like I've ever gone somewhere where we weren't supposed to have plans or anything like that. But like, Hey, we're supposed to have dinner and it's four o'clock and I'm just going to like leave. That's yeah. No, I've never done that. Never done that. And it is. I as, have like, I have like needed to take a walk a couple of sure. times. Yeah. And you just get out of the house. Yeah. But never like a, I'm supposed to be somewhere and I'm not there. I try never. I I try not to do that. And it is as transgressive as it feels in the domestic way in this book. She's, I just was really struck when she is walking in the suburbs and she longs for going to the city where she could just like walk down a street and then all of a sudden there'd be another street to walk down. And -hmm. all of a sudden there'd just be another street to walk down. And it's just a particular phrasing of the, of the type of life that she's looking for. Um, yeah. So what happens when you're taking the back streets, you know, There's so much to do and so much to see. Yeah. Hmm. I'm just chewing on that one. Sorry. No, that's good. Just thinking about Shrek. Anyway, <laughs> uh, she also deals with this thing and, and this comes up versions of it come up in, I guess the other women's stories, but she, has like a little spat with her housekeeper Nellie over like what they're going to eat when her sister Vanessa comes over later and like will Leonard be satisfied with the pears they're going to have or whatever it is. And Virginia Woolf is just like, I don't know how to deal with my housekeeper. I don't know how to run my house. This part of my life stinks and I feel like I'm bad (laughs) at it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's, she is, it's a version of womanhood that she doesn't feel she's good at, but also kind of resents that she wishes she were better at. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't. Yeah, it's later. She, she like makes a resolution to make uh, Clarissa Dalloway in her novel uh, be good at dealing with her servants because that's a quality that she, Virginia Woolf, lacks. Um, her sister arrives early, Andrew. Do you like okay. it when people arrive early when you say come? Absolutely to my- <laughs> not. No. So if if you what okay, what time do you want me to come over, Andrew? Seven thirty. What if I showed up at six? That would be your fault. <laughs> like everything that would happen to you would be your fault. And I know I'm supposed to do the thing where I like pretend to be a good host or whatever, but my world at six and my world at seven thirty are two drastically different yeah. worlds for me. And you just have to be fine with existing on the outside of that. And then also when seven thirty does roll around, I'm mad at you. <laughs> So there's this great, there's this great scene where like her sister shows up with her and her sister Vanessa has three kids and Wolf is comparing herself to her sister and being like, okay, I'm this supposedly great writer, but what am I going to leave behind? My sister has made these cool kids. She literally made kids out of nothing. Like, isn't that fascinating? Um, but her, but her sister is, yes, okay. Her sister is 90 (sighs) minutes early. That's so early. (laughs) And I love this. I'm like 10 minutes early. Like I'm, I'm a little, I'm probably still vacuuming some remote corner of the house, but like the most of it is done 90 minutes. Like I'm probably half done. Okay. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you something you can say the next, if this ever happens to you, Andrew, this is what Virginia says to her sister, darling. If I tell you I'm enchanted to see you now, I'm sure you can imagine how ecstatic I'd have been to see you at the hour you were actually expected. <laughs> that's good. That's a good burn. Some real good burns. That's yeah, a, that's good. That's a thing that um, Cunningham mentions a lot in that Guardian piece I said earlier. He talks about Wolf being charming and witty and you know, having this like remarkable personality at parties. And we think about Wolf as this very tragic figure and um, her novels being inherently tragic. And so like, he's, I think he's trying to inject some wit where he can to this woman that he knows was more than that. Um, And then the, the, like the turning point of Wolf's, plot is figuring out what she's going to do with this novel is clarissa going to take her own life in the novel or is it going to be another character and there's this pivotal scene where her sister's kids hold a funeral for a bird they found on the street and it gives her an idea that someone else will die okay it's this whole thing where she finds herself like this so it's like two teenage boys and their five-year-old sister and the five-year-old sister is like really invested in this bird funeral. And Virginia Woolf is like, I too am very invested in this bird funeral. And it gives her a lot of space to like think about death and it pings some stuff for her. It's kind of interesting. I don't know. I've never, I don't know that I've, as a kid, I buried some pets. I don't think I ever like put a straight, a dead, like random stray animal on like a funeral pyre. Or in a box. No, my my brother tried. He had one time he took in a bird that had like fallen out of a nest and nursed it back to health, and it 
like would land on his finger even for like a few days after he let it go he could go stand in the backyard and it would come and land on his finger and that one experience sort of did not prepare him for how it normally goes when you try to nurse a baby wild animal back oh a lot lot of dead baby birds and and rabbits just around your house um not not like sitting around but that just like entered and left our lives <laughs> mm. because of that one time that it went well at first um shout out to that bird though yeah, yeah no good job bird um <laughs> and then yeah as far as like pets my my dad mostly handled the uh the unpleasant parts of that and the rest of us avoided it yeah 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 that's sad anyway um, so that's mostly what's up with Virginia Woolf. You asked, okay. <laughs> this bird funeral that happens. Um, and it, it's about, you know, the book doesn't quite, you know the whole time that, that it has started with this image of her taking her own life. So it is largely about her trying to find her way to this ideal version of a story that takes the everyday life of a character and lends it the import of great literature and how is she going to get there okay so kind of like a there is a theme of this book that is like obsessing over the ideal version of something and the quest to make it the best version of what you want kind of revealing large portions of yourself even if it isn't something that is like this big gigantic thing so the next, the character that makes the most sense to jump to is Laura Brown, uh, who's living in 1949 out in the suburbs of Los Angeles. Um, she is a fan of the novel Mrs. Dalloway, so much so that she does not want to get out of bed on her husband's birthday uh, to go downstairs and do anything about it because she's in bed reading this book. What is what she wonders is wrong with her. This is her husband in the kitchen. This is her little boy. All the man and boy require of her is her presence and, of course, her love. She conquers the desire to go quietly back upstairs to her bed and book. I've never struggled to get away from anything that I wanted to do by myself. <laughs> well, and I have never... <laughs> I've never... As, as Once you get up to a certain age, like... I don't know. I've stopped caring that much about birthday stuff. Mm, fair enough. Uh, so yeah, I can't imagine being bothered by Susanna staying in bed to read a book on your unless birthday. Unless we had had like specific other like childcare arrangements or something. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, well, and the thing with Laura Brown is that she, her husband, uh, I think his name is Dan. He is just like Dan Brown, huh? Now I need to make sure that his name is Dan because <laughs> you wouldn't want to yeah. accuse him of being Dan Brown without standing no definitely her husband oh, Dan, Dan Brown Dan. author right. husband Dan Brown author of the Da Vinci Code and subsequent and Inferno and all the other good books that we've read yeah thanks Michael Cunningham for making this mm-hmm. a book about multiple for books inventing Dan Brown <laughs> um sh- her Laura is kind of struck by the fact that her husband, Dan, is just kind of like, he's just happy to be here. He's just got big, like, happy That's to be. That's how Dan Brown seems. Yeah, it's a good like point. Like on a bookshelf. She, she's just happy to be there. 
Later, she is talking to her neighbor Kitty about their husbands, both their husbands Dan and I think her husband's name is Ray. Um, they're veterans of World War II, and they've come back with this like, "Hey, what do you need? I'll do it. I'm just happy. I'm not still fighting World War II." Like, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> just some, I can understand that perspective. So, so like a lucky to be alive thing that is kind of at least in Dan as we see him in the book really congealed into like. Almost a like a Labrador sense of like I'm so happy to see you. Just ha- like my tail's wagging just because you're home, kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And she is feeling very guilty about not about him making breakfast on his birthday. And he's like, I'm just happy you're here. What do you want? Um, and as soon as he goes off to work, we get this long scene where she is baking a cake for him, and the cake is this like monument to successful domestic life you i know you andrew and you know Mm -hmm. me we've ever made meals for people we've ever planned to to host people or something and you Mm -hmm. really want it to go right you really you really want it to go right and sometimes it don't and that sucks when it don't it does suck when it don't do you feel like that? So ever? That's, I mean, it can change the course of your life. Like when Susanna made only okay cupcakes for our Breaking Bad finale viewing party, that like made her become the Joker of baking, <laughs> and so she's very good at baking now. So sometimes it can have. I don't a think I knew that impact. Sue's had an origin story. <laughs> no, it, she definitely does, and it's definitely those cupcakes. <laughs> I hope she doesn't mind. It's been, that's been years since that happened. So I hope she doesn't mind me sharing the story. Mostly, she just likes when we talk about her. On the yeah, podcast. well, and she's a very good baker. So I, she is I think she's great. We're not, you know, we're we're paying her her due. I think. Yeah. Um, but Laura, the character in the book here, not a great baker, and she is just kind of really stressing about it being good, and it's bringing up all of her feelings about she whether or not she likes being a wife, whether or not she likes being a mother, she is pregnant with their second kid at the time. And she, throughout the creation of this cake that ends up not being great and she throws it in the garbage, um, oscillating between like really loving her son and really feeling good about what she's doing and being like, this is why am I even here? What is happening? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, and so that that is Cunningham, I think, trying to do some of what Wolf is up to in terms of like the here is a here is a daily struggle for some people, or here is a what you would consider a quote unquote mundane task, but like let's spend the time to find the high stakes version of it. But like internal high stakes. Not like you're making a cake for the queen and it has to go well or you die. Right. But the like Oh, your Susanna example is actually very good because it's like this cake is now part of my identity. <laughs> this <laughs> in the in the way that like you know you you do certain things and they become part of how you see yourself and you want them to be good. I don't know. We yeah. felt that way when yeah. we go into like overdue live shows in particular. I think because there's a there's an immediate feedback of like, did we do a good job? This is the thing that we say that we do. Are people laughing at the dumb stuff that we... Yeah. 
we sold them a bill of goods. We haven't done that in a while. And the first time we do it after like post pandemic, it's going to be pretty bad for me. It's going to be a rough one. <laughs> Anxiety wise. Yeah. Um, there's some <sighs> really, there's a really nice portion of this cake scene, Andrew, where she is dealing with her son, Richie, who is four and she is helping. She's invited him to help her make the cake. And she, I just love this scene where she's telling him how to dump the flour from the measuring cup into the bowl. Mm -hmm. And the flour doesn't come out of the cup at first, so he shakes it kind of hard, and it just plops right into the bowl. But it kind of startles him, and he's never done it before, and he has no idea if he did it right. And he starts to get nervous and a little upset, and she's like, no, you did it great. And it's just like the way that she has to manage her own emotions about managing his emotions yeah. was really powerful. And it, mm-hmm. I know that you have ever talked to me about that. I know that from other parents that I know that that is like a huge part of the work. Yeah, definitely. Is managing your own stuff. And it for her... I can say yeah. that she should be doing it by weight. And that, <laughs> so that's one reason that the cake didn't turn out. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Thanks for that. Measure your ingredients by weight, people. Okay. Rather than by volume. Yes. Okay. Anyway, go ahead, Craig. Yeah, you should write I a apologize. letter to Michael Cunningham and tell him that that's why she did it wrong. Well, no, she like sh- the in the story the cake has to turn out badly, so it's good that she was doing by volume. Oh, Michael anyway, Cunningham go made ahead. a good choice. You're saying? Yeah. Okay. No, he made a good character choice, but a bad baking choice. Perfect. Um, but for the, he did it for the right reasons. I'm really sorry that I interrupted what felt like a, a good point that you. Were I making. was trying to. I was trying to invite you into a serious moment, and you, I think, rightfully punctured the balloon. I think you did a good job. That's what I do. Yeah, there's balloon stuff everywhere now. Um, her neighbor <laughs> Kitty comes by. This scene is like one of those. Oh. I think she's good at this kind of life. I don't feel like I'm good at this kind of life. But also, Kitty doesn't have any kids, and I do have kids. And so we're both recognizing that we are, like, good and, quote-unquote, good and bad at being this type of housewife in this moment. Sure. Um, They do have a brief kiss. And Kitty pulls out of it, and Laura immediately... It comes out of a moment where Kitty is confessing some, like health scare that she's in and needs like Laura to feed her dog and then she hugs her and then this happens a couple times throughout the novel where like there is a moment where someone needs even just some sort of hug or physical contact and then one or both of the characters kind of test the boundary of it and Mm -hmm. that happens in each of the three timelines actually Um, and all of those moments are, are really interesting uh Laura's story kind of wraps up with her this kitty moment kind of shakes her she throws the cake in the trash and then she spends the afternoon in a hotel in LA so that she could read her book so that she could read okay. Mrs. Dowler she drops her son off <laughs> Wait, at a where neighbor's do they house think that she is okay fine um and it gets kind of serious after she's reading this Virginia Woolf novel and she's thinking about the characters 
who are uh, considering taking their own life, and she likens that choice to how easy it is to check into a hotel, which she does under, like, she's like, I'm just going to be here for a few hours, but I'm going to pretend that I'm going to be here all night, and sure. then I'm just going to leave, and I'm going to paint it. I don't think you can pay in advance for a hotel room anymore, but she does in the book. Hmm. I don't think you can do that anymore. Well, usually you need to leave, like, your card info. Oh, and then they just so charge it's, it's you. So it's leave. not like you pay up front, but you also can't walk out without paying. Sure, sure, Because sure, they've sure. got your what they need to charge you anyway. Okay. Um, and her her part of the story kind of ends on her kind of the open question of what she's going to, whether or not she's going to continue with this life that she's kind of unsatisfied with. Okay. And then we've got the Miss Dalloway stuff, which we've been shortchanging a little bit um, as we talk about the other two. But because again, you have not read the book, Mrs. No, Dalloway. I have not. So I'll give you the the big sketch here is that Clarissa, who's in her early fifties, lives in New York City with her partner Sally. Um, a m- number of the names in this whole section of the book are references either to work by Wolf directly to Mrs. Dalloway or other things therein. Sure, um, that makes sense. She there. It's interesting because it's like. There's a couple different relationship triangles happening in this part of the book where a lot of the characters come out of the free love 60s, as some of them put it Ooh. in the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them have settled down into pretty stable relationships. Some are same sex, some are not. Some of them, this guy that we meet a little bit later, Lewis, is like still kind of... He's in his fifties and he keeps dating men in their in his in their young twenties and none of the relationships last very long and he can't really find whatever he's looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and the plot, in as much as there is one, is that she's getting some flowers for a party that she's throwing for her former lover Richard, who is a poet who is dying with AIDS, and he got this thing called the Carruthers Prize that nobody seems to have heard of. Um, for a limited body of work, including a novel that in some stretches is based on her and their relationship together. Okay. It is my understanding that this is an inversion of Clarissa Dalloway's like relationship history in the novel in the novel Mrs. Dalloway, Dalloway, excuse me, where like, I think Richard is supposed to be this like early relationship she had where if what it's a big what if relationship. We mm-hmm. we've all got them. We've all yeah. got the like this was someone early 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 in my life and what if I'd not broken that off or what if I had yeah. put in the work to stay in that relationship. And that's that's really what this story is about, I think. You'll find them more grossly referred to as the one that got away, yeah. which is the what you call them when you're unhappy in your current relationship <laughs> and you're pretending that you would never have been unhappy in an alternate relationship. Yes. Um, and I, I think this this novel was interesting to me reading it as it also is like a portrait of a lot of of how a lot of those relationships must have felt like in the late 19 in like the 80s and 90s um coming out of the AIDS epidemic and and coming out of you know the gay and lesbian community in New York um mm-hmm. there's a character that Clarissa's daughter Julia 
is like, I guess was her professor, someone called Mary Krull, which is an amazing name, who is a queer theorist who's maybe 10 years younger than uh, Clarissa. And they have this conversation later in the book where they're both trying to be polite to each other for Julia's sake. But in their heads, there's like a generational divide of like, oh, uh, Clarissa, you and your partner have this like very classic yes, you're in a lesbian, like, long-term relationship, but you're basically just doing the comfortable, safe thing that is, like, might as well just be a heterosexual marriage. And Mary Krull is, like, out there in the streets all the time fighting. They both get to voice complaints about the other person. Um, Mm -hmm. This is an interesting, like, voice to bring into this book, I think. I don't know how to give better voice to that like generational divide or whatever it might be i don't know um but the richard stuff is like really tragic and he ponders whether or not they'd be giving him this award if he weren't dying um and that is like one of the ways in which this book talks a lot about like fame there's a (laughs) andrew there's a character named oliver saint ives which is I think kind of a name is that? I think it's a reference to like um the place St. Ives, which I think is where To the Lighthouse takes place. And I mean it sounds like the fake name that you would give if you were checking into a hotel. Yeah. Like <laughs> to read a book for the rest of the day. Um here's the here's the quick like elevator pitch we get for Oliver St. Ives, who um Clarissa's partner Sally goes to meet for lunch at one point. Oliver St. Ives, who came out spectacularly in Vanity Fair and was subsequently dropped from his leading role in an expensive thriller, has gained more notoriety as a gay activist than he could ever have hoped for had he continued posing as a heterosexual and cranking out pricey (laughs) B-movies. And his scene is a real indictment of his character and how he... like. I don't know how he functions as a a version of fame that like you think you might want, but do you want it? And what are you even getting it for? Yeah, um, sure. As all of these characters kind of like wonder if they could have had a, a bigger or better life than the one that they had. Um, and then there's this fun line considering the movie, Andrew, where she see Clarissa sees a famous person on like a movie set on the street in New York city. And everyone's like, who was that person who just ducked into a movie trailer? I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. And if you've ever seen Mm -hmm. a famous person out in the wild, the only, when we lived in Jersey city, we walked by when, and and we were in Manhattan, we walked by Mark Ruffalo once. Whoa. In a way where Susanna had seen him and I had like caught a glimpse of, like a vaguely ruffalo shaped person out of the corner of my eye. <laughs> but yeah, it's like a it's a you don't quite realize that it's happened until it's happened sometimes. Did he look angry? I don't know. I didn't I think you could look at him. Right. I just uh, I think he just looked like Mark Ruffalo having just walking around. It's my understanding that he's always angry. Well, that's the character he plays in the movies, Craig. Sometimes people get cast cuz they're very like the characters. Mhm. I once saw Michael J. Fox on Kenyon College's campus. I know. I think this is the second time we've talked about this in in the last like 
half dozen podcast episodes that we've done. Yeah, well, because we were talking about it in the context of you doing college tours. Oh, sure. Okay, I won't. Stop. I won't talk about it anymore. <laughs> Go find that episode. Good luck to you. Um, but the the line is is funny because of where the casting for the movie wound up going. Um, Clarissa says, because even if the door to the trailer had opened, the woman inside, be she Meryl Streep or Vanessa Redgrave or even Susan Sarandon, would have been simply that, a woman in a trailer, and you could not possibly have done what you wanted to do. You could not have received her there on the street, taken her in your arms, and wept with her, which is going on and on about like famous people are not the version you have in your head, nor are you prepared to deal with them as like the human that they actually are. Well, and, there, and there's an element of that relationship that I've encountered occasionally, sometimes in a very small way as a podcast person, where there is a like a relational asymmetry where they know or think they know a yeah. lot about you and you know absolutely nothing about them. And so it introduces this other layer of like separation between you and them. It can be a, a, a bizarre power dynamic for sure that can swing both ways, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um but it is funny that Meryl Streep ended up being in the film. It is, you know, that's it is funny. They did a good it's job of that making that sure up. that she yeah. was in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'll just say that the the Richard storyline does not end great for the people involved. It's pretty shocking. He's a very moving character, um, and it's. I don't know the the scenes with Clarissa will probably I'll probably talk more about them when we read Mrs. Dalloway, but called shot, yeah, well, um, but they they are probably the best work in the novel in terms of like okay here's a web of characters and Cunningham the author can kind of bop between them as necessary shuffle them on and off stage to give us some interesting context or give us another version of like people wishing their lives were different or just what, not even wishing, just wondering what if I had made a few different decisions. Um, And yeah, I made it that the relationships in the book are kind of like, they're kind of runny. Like they all, a lot of the interactions you see are between people who are like, no one has made a clean break from each other's lives. There's people who bump into each other after years apart. There's people who don't have clearly defined boundaries between each other. Um, Everyone's kind of questioning how they fit into each other's lives. Yeah. Um, And they're not, they're not doing any of that out loud. (laughs) I'll tell you that it's all internal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And so like, despite your best attempts, maybe to like, clearly define where people fit into your life this this book kind of shows how that doesn't work and i'll just wrap by saying that like this book uh could have been longer and it would have been worse it was the perfect length it felt like i was reading like three short novellas that were in concert with one another as opposed mm-hmm. to like this deep epic story and kind of overloading the what the premise of the book was and were they like were they hurt by alternating instead of 
coming all at once or am I misunderstanding the way the book is set up? Cause that would, I guess that would be the main difference between the book being as it is and the book being three novellas is in, in novellas, presumably you'd get, you know, one person, one person, one person instead of, you know, I think they would suffer as separate stories. I think that, okay. I think that they were, they, they, they're better served by being able to interact with each other via proximity. Yeah. 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 Okay. And you know, and there's the, there's the couple of bits of character overlap and bits of thematic overlap. Um, but I, f- I got the feeling reading this book that I've gotten from reading some other short stories where I go like, oh, I can see why they adapted this to film. I can see why these characters feel rich, but they don't feel overwritten. Mm-hmm. And so someone takes this story and goes, yo, I could give this, we could flesh this out and make a big movie out of it. We could, I could give this to an actor and they could come up with all sorts of stuff to act out. And the I like this character. Yes, this is my movie producer character. He works for yeah. Orion Films. Um, Johnny Big Time or he's whatever. Chomping on a cigar. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, it is for a book that vibes with what Wolf does with language while still having its own voice and can at first blush feel very like lyrical and poetic at times. I don't. I didn't come away being like whoa iowa writers workshop cool your jets like i got stuff to do like it moved Mm -hmm. and it was pretty lean for what it is cool so yeah i'm excited to dig into mrs dalloway proper um yeah i did write a note in our in our slack to remember to put that on the schedule for august will do will do um and so yeah maybe people who listen to this go read that book and we'll talk about it in a month or two um andrew thanks for telling me about Susanna's origin story i didn't know that and i'm glad that i know it now i didn't know that you didn't know and so now i'm glad that you know okay cool 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 um if you want to tell us your baking origin stories send us an email at overdue pod hit us up on twitter and facebook at overdue pod don't forget we want to know uh what section of the barnes and noble you think is the straight books section (laughs) please tell us uh this is me outsourcing a stupid joke to the people who listen to our podcast yeah that's what else is social media for thanks to kara molly sean olivia david juliana and many more for reaching out in the past week our theme song is composed by nick larangis andrew folks want to know more about the show where should they go they should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to the books that we have read and the ones we are going to read. Those will take you to bookshop.org, where you can order the books and read along with us. Uh, and we get a cut. You get a book. You get a cut in the form of a book, I guess. And then <laughs> your local independent bookseller also gets a cut. So win, win, win. Uh, we have links to Apple and Google and our RSS feed. Uh, subscribe there. Subscribe in Stitcher. Subscribe in Spotify. Wherever you want, really. Uh, what are you reading Patreon. Dot- oh, sorry. I was going to say patreon.com slash pot is where you can give our money. Clearly, that's the most important thing I need to say. So, like, don't interrupt me, please. No problem. Uh, next week... Uh, I'm going to be reading Imposter Syndrome by Kathy Wong. I uh, found it on a list of good 2021 beach reads on OprahDaily.com because we're going to a beach soon and we had a hole in the schedule. So that is like a brand spanking new book. But I also read a quarter of it 
between noon and like 9 p.m. So it's a it's a I am enjoying it a lot. If you decide to read along with us, I do think it will be one of the more accessible read alongs. Nice. Uh, that that we've that we've had so yeah it's 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 been fun so far and the rest of our july schedule will follow so look for that up on the website and our social feeds pretty soon that's what they're for that's what they're for all right everybody thanks for listening and until we talk to you next time try to be happy That was a HeadGum Podcast.